Um, we are starting a new series today uh, looking at the book of 1 John. And uh, so we're going to walk through that over the next, uh, really up until Christmas time. But just remember, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about wisdom, talking about what wisdom is and how do we get it, how do we find it. And one of the things we discovered is that wisdom is very elusive. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to find, it's hard to get. Um, it's actually more valuable than gold or silver or precious gems. And yet if we were to look to the right source, uh, then God gives it generously to those who ask for it. Um, and like I said, today and up until Christmas time, we're going to be looking at another elusive quality as we look at the book of 1 John. We're going to be looking at the quality of joy. Um, joy is almost always a byproduct uh, of something else. Joy emanates out of your enjoyment of something else. Uh, in other words, you can't get joy by looking for joy. That's just not how you get it. You have to look for something else. Joy always comes as a byproduct of your enjoyment of another thing. Um, think about it like looking at a star. So this last week I was in uh, Colorado and I was staying at a friend's house and they live in like the middle of nowhere, Colorado, and I was working. And so every day I would get to their house late at night and I would leave early in the morning. And so when I came and when I left, the stars were always out. So I actually don't know what their house looks like because it was always dark. But because they live in the middle of nowhere, I'd get out of the car at night when I got there and my, my eyes would just be drawn up because I was experiencing something that we don't really get to experience here in Los Angeles, the stars. Um, and uh, so I just, every time I got out of the car, I would just look up and just see, you just see millions and millions and millions of these stars. It was like this beautiful tapestry in the sky. It was unbelievable. But you know what happens when you look at one star? You experience that, so I'd look up and I'd see this incredible star and I'd be staring at it and you look at it long enough and that star actually disappears. Have you ever experienced that? You look at a star, you look at it long enough and it's gone. And all the other ones around it are still there, but, but you somehow made that star disappear. That's sort of like what it is to try and find joy. If you look straight forward, if, if you fixate on it, strangely it will disappear. But like that star, if you shift your gaze a little bit wider, if you look at the whole context, you widen your focus, all of a sudden you can see that star again. Joy is kind of like that. If you fixate on it alone, you probably won't get it. But if you focus on something else, if you focus on the right source, then it, you'll end up being filled with joy. And that's what we're going to learn as we go through the book of 1 John over the next six or seven weeks. Because look at how our passage today, look at how it ends in verse 4. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. And so this is John's actual aim in writing the letter. Uh, it's joy. The, the whole purpose for him writing is joy. And yet, here's the strange thing. Go and read through 1 John yourself this afternoon, and you'll find that that's the only time that word shows up. It's the only time in the whole letter that the word joy shows up. So joy is the aim of the letter. That's the whole reason he wrote the book. And yet, he doesn't talk about it as a means of getting it. And instead, if you read through the book, what you find is he actually talks about two primary ideas over and over and over again. Uh, one of the main primary ideas he talks about is Jesus Christ in the flesh, God coming to earth in the flesh. And then the second idea that he talks about over and over again is loving fellowship with, with one another in the church. These are the two themes, and everything in this book, it runs through or flows out of those two ideas. And what John seems to think is that reading about and talking about and studying those two ideas is what brings joy. Jesus Christ in the flesh and loving fellowship with one another in the church, that's what brings joy. And that's exactly where John begins the letter. 
And by the way, the, it's, it doesn't read very much like a letter. There's no like, you know, from this to this. He just, he just starts right in. And really, it's more like reading a pastor's sermon notes. And so we're going to see three things as we look through this, though, um, in these four verses. We're going to see the truth that's proclaimed, the fellowship, and the joy. So the truth, the fellowship, and the joy. And notice this, by the way, John uses the word proclaim. He uses it three times in these four verses. And when you see a word repeated so many times in such a short paragraph, it should highlight to you that this is an important word. You should pay attention to this word. And actually, technically, it's, it's only in these four verses two times, but the translators of the NIV uh, that we had read, in order to kind of smooth out the language, they put it in a third time. Uh, Greek kind of works that way. Sometimes it, it implies a word, and it's not really there. So it really is there three times. It's only written down two times. Um, but Greek, Greek, that's how it works. Uh, but here in our translation, it actually says proclaim at the very end of verse 1. And then again, it says it in the middle of verse 2. And then one more time, it says it right at the start of verse 3. And that word proclaim, it's simply to announce or to declare or even to like report back some kind of news or some kind of important information. And so what is it that John said he declared? What is it he's proclaimed? We'll look back at verse 1. What is it he proclaimed? He says, that which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. And then again in verse 3, he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard. And so he's proclaiming what he heard, what he saw, what he touched. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about something concrete, something real, something physical, something that has walked on the earth. He's not talking about something spiritual, something ethereal. He's actually, and follow me here, he's not even talking about a doctrine. This isn't like a, just an idea that he's talking about. He's talking about a real person who is solid. He says, we saw him with our eyes. We looked at him. That word for looked is we gazed at him. It's, it's not, like they looked at him over a long time. And then he says, our hands touched him. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. You can't put your hand through him. He has a real flesh and blood body. And he says, we heard him. In other words, he had intelligence and the ability to communicate. He's not some impersonal force. He's a real person. And we've used these words before, but he's, he's talking about something imminent. You remember this word? For something to be imminent, that means that it, it's near you. It, it has to be close to you. That's what it means. It's something near enough that you can hear it, that you can see it, that you can touch it. And a few weeks ago, I introduced to you some, some drawings. And uh, these same drawings, they apply here. Boy, oh, boy, do they apply here. Uh, but also, I'm just very proud of them. And so any chance I get to show you my artwork, I'm going to do it. Um, because no one will give me a gallery to show them in. So you're my gallery. Um, and so we, we talked about these, uh, these different ways of viewing the world. And so this is the first one. Uh, so this is, the, this is the world, say this is Los Angeles, that's why there's palm trees there. And, uh, right? Thank you. Thank you. If it was really Los Angeles, one of them would be on fire. So it's not quite Los Angeles. Uh, maybe I'll update it um, for the next time we show these. Anyway, go to the next slide, because this is, a, this is sort of the way that uh, many people in the West are now viewing the world. And this is what uh, one um, sociologist, one philosopher says. He calls it the imminent frame. In other words, what he's saying is, People that have this worldview, they only believe in what you can see, what you can hear, what you can touch. And that's it. And so they talk about it sort of like, you know, it's a world with just one floor. There's no second story. There's nothing beyond what you can see, touch, and hear. 
Uh, and that's one way of looking at the world. And so someone might look at this part of the text and come to this part of the text uh, about Jesus and say, well, yeah, sure, I, yes, he was a real man. He lived in history. And people saw him and they heard him and they touched him. And so you could look at that and say, yeah, but, but they might say, but that's all he was. He was only a man. Now, hold on a minute, though, because I actually, I don't know if you noticed, but I left off the bookends of the verse. Did you notice that? I skipped something. Uh, and so look how it starts in, in verse 1. It actually starts by saying this, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. And then down in verse 2, it, it talks about the eternal life which was from the Father. So that which is from the beginning, that which is eternal life. And now what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about transcendence. And remember, transcendence means like something that is, is far away, something that is distant, something that is over there. And that was our other drawing. Go to the next one there. And this is an idea of a world that is transcendent. And so instead of like a, you know, a closed, there's no second floor and second story to the universe, this idea would say, oh, the, the world, there's something more than what we can see, touch, taste, and feel. And that, that, this would be that way of, of looking at it. One way is to say, you know, there's nothing upstairs, but another way, and this is actually the way I'm realizing that most people in Los Angeles think about the world like this, that they would say that there is something else in this world, but they would say maybe it's an impersonal force. What John is saying when he says that which was from the beginning, and in verse 2, the eternal life which was with the Father, he's not talking about an impersonal transcendent force that's outside this world. He's talking about a personal one. It's more like this picture. There we go. He's talking about a person, a person who is eternal. He says, that which was from the beginning. So the life of Jesus, he says, was from the beginning. You know, the cleverest people in our world for generations have been trying hard to discover the origins of our universe. And here you have the Apostle John, a fisherman, and he says, with hardly a single word, more than two syllables, the origin of our universe is Jesus Christ. He was from the beginning. He existed before there was anything that we can hear or see or touch. And then what about his ending? Verse 2, it says, he is the life that appeared, but not only that, he's the eternal life. In other words, he's eternally existed. He has no beginning, but he also has no end. But he will live on for eternity. And as we talked about this, I've sort of separated out these two ideas of imminence and transcendence. We've sort of separated them, but put them back together because what John does is he actually smashes the two ideas together and he weaves in and out of the two ideas of imminence and transcendence like a tapestry. And so for John, these two ideas, they're inseparable. And put it this way, the eternal one, the one who is from eternity, was also seen and heard and touched by John and the other apostles. The transcendent became imminent. The one who is from the beginning entered into time and space. Now, of course, what he's talking about is the doctrine of the incarnation. And that doctrine is simply that God himself transcended from heaven to earth as a human with a real body, real flesh and blood, Real emotions, with a family, with friends. He was, he was born as a baby. He grew up to become a man just like any of us do. That God's entry into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, was a real entry into the world. He wasn't acting the part. 
His humanity was true humanity. And so the doctrine of the incarnation is that the Son of God, who existed from limitless eternity, entered time and space as a real human being who was born of a virgin, who lived, who suffered, who died, and who was raised from the dead. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. And this is what John proclaims. When John says what we saw, what we heard, what we touched, this is what we proclaimed. And to receive that truth, says John, not just to receive it yourself, but to receive it in fellowship with other people, that is to fill you with joy. That truth. Now, it's from that truth claim, as we go on, we'll see that we have fellowship, and that's point two, the fellowship. There's an interesting phenomenon that I've been noticing, witnessing lately. Uh, I don't think I've taken part in this, but if I ever do, please tell me. Uh, as I've been you know, around the city and in other places around the world, I've noticed groups of women, both young and old, walking around wearing essentially the same outfit. Have you seen this? Have you noticed this? Um, and by the way, it's not just women. It's men, too. In fact, I'm starting to see more men do it than women, to be honest. Uh, last weekend, I, I saw a whole group of men wearing essentially the same thing. They had the same boots, the same color jeans, the same color t-shirt, pretty much the same haircut, pretty much the same facial hair, almost exactly the same neck tech, too. They all looked the same. It started out with just two of them, and then three or four more came, and then five or six more came. By the end, there were about 15 or 20 of these men all wearing the same thing. And when I see this, especially that particular group, I never have the courage to go and ask them, why are you all wearing the same thing? Why do you all have the same haircuts? Why are you all wearing the same socks? I don't understand why you all have them. You know, is it... Did you plan this? Did you call each other and say, hey, guys, we're, we're the dark jeans, the black T-shirt today? You know, or the women are like, hey, we're in the leggings and the cowboy boots today. That's what we're doing today, all of us. Is, is there like a, a, a group chat that goes out, or is it just accidental? I do not know. If any of you know, please come and tell me. Now, what I'm describing there is an affinity group. It's a group of people who hang out together because they have some sort of similarity. You know, it might be they like the same clothes. Um, you know, they have the same style, or, or maybe there's an activity that they all like to do, for example, ride motorcycles. And there's a certain look that you have to have to be accepted into that affinity group. And an affinity group is just a group of people who have a shared interest or a common goal. You know, a political party is an affinity group. Supporters of the same sports team, that's an affinity group. But look at what John describes here. What's the common interest between Christians? Verse 3 he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also, catch this, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that word fellowship there, it's, it's the word for partnership. Over in Luke 5.10, it actually says that James and John were partners with Simon in fishing. They had a business partnership together. And so that word, it's actually an ordinary business word that's still used today to talk about partnership. And from that word, John and the other apostles, they developed this idea to talk about partnership with, with God himself and between Christians. So they, they build on this already existing word and they expand it. And so the common interest, the partnership between Christians, notice this, is the proclamation about Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, the basis for all Christian fellowship is the person of Jesus Christ. It could be nothing less than that. Nothing less than that. This is what a church is. A church is a group of people who have partnership together on the basis of Jesus Christ. But notice something else here about this fellowship, this partnership. Did you notice that all the relationships mentioned here, there's multiples of them here. Uh, Gary Burge, he's a New Testament scholar, and talking about this verse, he actually says that all Christian fellowship is triangular. So here's another drawing that I've done for you. Um, Yes, it's a triangle. Be impressed. But in this drawing, what you'll see is that, you know, on the... On the one side, you'll see me and Christ, me and God. That's, there's my fellowship with Christ. And on the other side, there's you and your fellowship with Christ. And at the bottom, there's our fellowship with one another. And so what this verse is saying is that actually all fellowship is triangular. You see, the, there's an interaction here in these verses. And because both you and I have fellowship with Christ... We also can have fellowship with one another. That's how that works. I have fellowship with Christ. You have fellowship with Christ. Therefore, we have fellowship with one another. When we stand up and we do the passing of the peace, that's us acting this out. We're actually living it out. And now there's, what this means is there's something far more profound going on here than just mere affinity. John is actually talking about a deep love and care that is not based on affinity This kind of fellowship, this partnership, it's based on truth rather than shared likes or shared dislikes. And it's not just any truth, but a particular truth, which means if we base our lives on that truth, then there is nothing stopping fellowship with any other kind of person who is also in fellowship with Christ, no matter how diverse they might be, no matter how different from you they may be. And here's the truth that all Christian fellowship is based on. It's what we've already talked about, the transcendent one the one who is from the beginning, the one who the apostles heard and saw and touched, the one who is eternal life. He died. A couple chapters over, John states this explicitly in John chapter 4, verse 9. It says this. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now what John's talking about there is that the transcendent one, the one who left heaven and came to earth in the form of a man, He did it in order to restore the fellowship that was broken between us and God. That there's actually a break in the fellowship between you and God. And yet because God so loved you, he showed his love among us by entering in, by taking on human flesh, by walking on the earth, in order that he would restore the fellowship that's broken between you and God because of our disobedience because of the ways that we've turned our back on God. It's not because we love God, it says, it's because God loved us. And so what did Jesus Christ do? Well, he he did the most loving thing possible. He was an atoning sacrifice for our sins, it says. And what that means is he shed his own blood. 
He atoned for the things that you and I deserve to be punished for. And he did that when he went to the cross. So that anyone who would put their faith in him, who would put their trust in him, could have every single one of their sins, past, present, and future, taken care of. That's what it means to be atoned for. And so what Jesus Christ did, what God did when he came in the flesh, his mission number one was to restore fellowship between you and me and God. This is an example of deep love and care without affinity. The Bible over and over again tells us that that we have rejected God, that we wanted nothing to do with him. We've We've removed any affinity that we could have with God because of our sin. And what God does in his great love for us is in spite of any disaffinity, he shows us his deep love and care. But not only that, do you know what else this passage says? There's a dynamic happening here that it says that because we have been loved this way, that we also can love that way. And so what this means is that people who are very unlike one another can have fellowship, can have deep care, partnership with one another, even if they have nothing in common from the world's point of view. Because the thing that they share together is not that we like the same clothes or the same musicians or the same food. The thing that Christians share in common is the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, he puts it this way over in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what he's talking about there is, is people who are both far away from Christ and especially also far away from one another. That passage is actually about these two groups of people who don't get along. They have nothing in common, no affinity. In fact, they're enemies. And he says, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And so do you see what's happening there? As he restores fellowship between me and God, between you and God, it means that we have fellowship together. And so when the thing you have in common is Christ, then there's nothing that can divide you, nothing that can separate you. Whatever dividing walls of hostility that might be put up out in the world, out there, are broken down in the church. And so Republican can have deep love and care for Democrat. The rich can have deep love and care for the poor, the poor for the rich, white for black, black for white, young for old, old for young. And here's what this looks like lived out. I've seen it happen right in front of my eyes here in our church. Just a few months ago, we were in the back before the service praying, and and somebody came in, and they were sharing something that they were struggling with. They'd had something bad happen that week, and they were asking the Sunday morning prayer group to pray for that. And so we did, and then after the service, we're standing out having our coffee and donuts, and another man in our church who was in the room, uh, these two men have no business being friends. They really don't. They are so unlike one another. They have no business being friends, let alone even even knowing one another, being in the same place as one another. But the one who heard the prayer request walked up to the one who was hurting, and he handed him a piece of paper. And it was the most beautiful picture of Christian fellowship I think I've ever witnessed before my eyes. 
he handed him a piece of paper and he said, these are some verses about suffering that always encourage me when I'm struggling. That's Christian fellowship. No affinity. Nothing but the truth of Christ. Here's another example. A few years ago, I was out with some friends from our church in Liverpool. And it was a pretty diverse group. It was a pretty diverse church. And there were some who were older, you know, sort of in their 50s, maybe, maybe even 60s. And there were some who were younger, like university students. And then there were some like me in the middle. You can decide which end of the spectrum I'm on. Uh, there were white, black, Asian, Persian, some who were obviously fairly well off and some who were obviously not so well off. And we were all out together in a pub or something and, and there was this other couple that was in there sitting near us and I kind of noticed that they kept like looking over in our direction and then talking to one another and then looking in our direction and then talking to one another and I was like checking that I was okay. I didn't know what was happening and after about an hour or so, the, the woman of this couple came up to us and she said, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but we, we've been talking about this for an hour. We can't figure it out. Why all of you guys would be together having such a good time? What would bring such a diverse group of people together? Well, of course, the answer is Christ. The thing that we all had, that we all have in common, is that we all have received the proclaimed truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. There is no other affinity that would bring that group together. And I'm sure that one, or, I know for sure that one or two of us in the group might be able to pair off based on some affinities, but not the whole group. This is what the fellowship looks like. This is what it looks like to have fellowship. But did you notice there was something else that very nice lady said? Actually, she's a little creepy because she watched us for an hour, but she was also nice. There's something else she said. She said, we don't understand why you'd all be together and having such a good time. And what I think she was trying to put her finger on was the joy. And that's point three. When the truth about Jesus brings people together in fellowship, the byproduct is joy. Verse 4, again, we write this to make our joy complete. Our translation says our joy complete. You'll see if you're looking at uh, one of the Pew Bibles, there's a, a little footnote there, and it could also be translated your joy complete. Translated either way, I think the sense is the same. John is talking collectively here. He's talking about our joy. And the hour is not just John and the other apostles. It's John and the other apostles and those who are reading the letter. It's a collective joy. Now let me show you what I mean. John is saying that these two ideas, Jesus Christ in the flesh and loving fellowship with one another in the church, this is what brings about joy in a person's life. This is what brings about our joy. And so why does he write about these two ideas? Joy. But back to our triangle, uh, if we can go back to that. What this verse is saying is that joy is the byproduct of fellowship. And so it actually looks like this. Go to the next slide. That out of each of these relationships flows joy. It's the byproduct of my relationship with God, of my relationship with you, of your relationship with God. You know, if these relationships are intact and not broken, but they're growing, me and God, you with God, us with one another, then we will have a growing sense of joy. That's what John is saying. However, break any of these in the triangle, and it will begin to diminish our joy. So here, here it is. 
break fellowship between me and God, and of course, that's going to diminish my joy. It removes the joy that is the byproduct of my fellowship with God because there's now no fellowship with God. Keep going around the triangle, go to the bottom, a break in fellowship between me and you, or between you and another person in our church, and that will diminish both your joy and their joy. And here's the one that's really hard for us to get our heads around in an individualistic culture, but look at this. Let's go one step further. If your fellowship, your partnership, your relationship with God is broken in some way, that diminishes my joy. And maybe that sounds selfish on my part. Again, we live in such an individualistic age. What does your fellowship with God have to do with me at all? Well, biblically speaking, a lot. Think about that. If you and I are really friends, if we really have fellowship with one another, and then if your relationship with God is not going well, that grieves me. Not just as your pastor, but as your brother. Somebody this morning came up to me and called me brother. I so prefer that over pastor. As your friend, it grieves me. And I hope, I think, I believe it would be the same for you with me. Or you with any other Christian in our church. Let's learn this by looking at the flip side of it. John writes in his second letter, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says this. He says, it has given me, notice this, it has given me what? Great joy. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. He's saying that your relationship with Christ, your children's relationship with Christ, that adds to my joy. And so the degree to which these relationships are intact in this triangle, you know, there's partnership, there's fellowship with me and God, me and you, you and God, that is the degree to which I will experience joy and you will experience joy. And that's the entire reason that John writes this letter. And in fact, the rest of the letter, it's actually about the hindrances of fellowship between us and God and us and one another and and how to overcome them. That's what the whole letter is about. He goes on, if, if you read through the letter, there's four hindrances to fellowship that show up in the first part of the letter. One of the things that breaks fellowship is sin. That can break the relationship between me and God, between me and you. The second one is a lack of love for one another. Obviously, that breaks my fellowship with you, but it also breaks my fellowship with the Lord, and it probably also breaks your fellowship with the Lord. The third one he talks about in the letter is is just love for the world over love for Christ. And the fourth one is either false belief or false teaching about Jesus Christ, that you would diminish what we talked about, about the incarnation of Christ. Any of those things, any of those hindrances could break any relationship in the triangle. And that's what the rest of this series is going to be about. What things can break our fellowship with God with one another, and how do we overcome them? Because if we do, if we can overcome those things, John says the result will be our joy. But notice this, and this will be our last thing. Notice the degree of joy if we overcome these hindrances to fellowship. Look again at verse 4. It says, we write this to make our joy complete. Another way of translating that would be to say, we write this to make our joy filled full, filled to the brim. Think of a cup filled all the way to the top, so much so that you can't pick it up without spilling it. That's the image there. But actually, the image goes even further, because it's not just filled up one time. The idea is that it's complete, that it's whole, and so it's that our joy would not just be filled up, but would remain full. 
every time we visit uh, Emmy's aunt and uncle, um, they live in Italy, and every time we visit them, um, I always end up at dinner sitting next to Emmy's uncle. Um, I don't know if that's planned. It's definitely not planned on my part. He's a great guy, but there's something that, funny that always happens when we do, and that's whatever I'm drinking, be it water, be it something else, uh, he will always have more of it to his left. I'm always, always sitting on his right. He'll always have more of it over there. And as soon as I take a sip, the second I take a sip, I don't even have the glass back down on the table, and he's filling it up again. And I'll take a sip, and he fills it up. And I'll take a sip, and he fills it up. And I started testing this theory to see if he would ever miss it. And he's never one time missed it. And so I get to the point, there's some things that, you know, if you have, if your cup is always full, it creates problems later. And so I will take that cup, and I will put it as far away from him as possible. Because he will continue, to, it's completely full to the brim, continuously full. And that's the picture here that John has of this joy that we can have if we have fellowship with God, if we have fellowship with one another. If we can keep that fellowship triangle intact, not only will we be filled with joy, but God will continue to pour it in. And so if we know this, then this is what makes joy less elusive. It actually becomes accessible to us. But we have to shift our attention. You'll see this as we go through the rest of the letter. We'll have to shift our attention from what the world offers us to what is offered us in Christ. And we have to look not at joy. We don't, we don't look at, not, it's not like staring at a star. We, we can't just look at joy and think we're going to get it. We have to look at something else. And the thing that John says we should look at is Christ. Look at Christ. He is the source of joy. He is the fountain of all blessings, that everything comes from him and through him and is for him. And the, the, the degree to which we do that is the degree to which our joy increases. And the degree to which we do that in fellowship with other people is the degree to which our joy increases. And so let's aim to have fellowship with him. Let's aim to have fellowship with one another. And in so doing, we're going to receive that byproduct of joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you want to fill us with joy. And so, Lord, we want to be those who look to Christ, who meditate on his incarnation, that the one who is from eternity took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that one died for us, and that one was raised for us, and, and that Jesus Christ now is at the center of the throne advocating for us. Lord, may that be the basis of the fellowship, the partnership that we have with one another. And Lord, as we do that, would you fill us with joy? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.